Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. We have the next installment today in our series about people's jobs. We've been talking to folks about what they do and how they do it and why. Today, we're going to take you inside a distillery in northwest Portland. It's called Freeland Spirits. They make gin and whiskey and other drinks. They are one of the very few distilleries owned and run by women. That includes their master distiller, Molly Troop. We met up with Molly to get a tour of the production room and to get a sense for what it means to be a master distiller. We started with her background. I asked what Molly wanted to be when she was growing up. So in seventh grade, I decided I wanted to be a forensic anthropologist. And so I wondered how to get down that pathway, how to ultimately become that. And um, I wanted to go to an in-state school um, for tuition reasons. And I happened to find a program at Southern Oregon University that was a, ma- uh, it was a chemistry degree with an emphasis in forensics. And I decided to go to that school and pursue that degree. And it wasn't until my junior year when I was actually doing all the forensic pieces, I had done enough gen ed where I could do that part, where I realized I actually didn't like that part of chemistry. What didn't you like about it? I did not like that it was very analytical and that if you actually had, um, you know, if you had a case and you did something wrong, um, someone could get off with a crime. And, you know, you have to do things by the book. There's not a lot of creative license. And I realized that I was actually a creative person at heart. And so I just knew I loved chemistry, but I didn't like that application. What do you like about chemistry? I like that you're putting things together. It's kind of like the the harmonic feeling you have when you're making a good meal, right? It's very similar. You're kind of working together. You have all these ingredients and you're trying to make something beautiful. And spirits is like that. Uh, Sometimes it's more technical. Sometimes it's not. Um, But it's putting incredible ingredients together and getting an end result. And you're encouraged to drink it, which you're not encouraged to do in normal chemistry labs. Do you remember the first time that you thought distilling was a potential career for you? Yeah, I actually remember the moment where I had a drink in hand. I was wondering what I was, I was stressing out. I was like, what am I going to do? You were in college at this point? I was in college. And of course, you know, you're going, you're getting this degree, you're spending money and you're like, well, am I going, going, is this all for nothing? And I had that point where I was drinking a glass of whiskey and I had the thought that maybe what I had in my hand was actually something I could do. And then I realized I had a friend who was doing the UC Davis Brewing program and it had never really occurred to me before that there was like an avenue to get down that route of making spirits, making beer. So I, I talked with this friend, I talked with some brewery owners, and I looked at the UC Davis Brewing program, and I realized at that time that they had a two-year wait list. And I knew enough about myself to know that if I left school, I probably wouldn't go back. So I looked into other programs, and I found a program in Scotland for a master's degree in brewing and distilling. And I applied, and within a month, I learned that I got in. Can you take us to the heart of the, the factory here, sure. the, the heart of the yeah. distillery? Yeah. We're going to make our way to Hellbitch. Hellbitch? Hellbitch. <laughs> How, that's, that's the name of the still? <laughs> that is. So, How did it get that name? Um, Hellbitch made her journey all the way from Germany, and um, I th- we brought her onto the floor in 2018. Um, I actually brought her into the building myself, uh, which was a lot of, a lot of fun, although very stressful. Um, And when she arrived, we got her installed, and we were looking 
at her and just kind of, you know, dreaming and wondering who we are and what what her name was. And Jill, who's Freeland's founder and CEO, um, she's from Texas and she sent this to her brothers. Um, all of them, you know, grew up in Texas reading Lonesome Dove. And they, as soon as she sent this to one of them, he immediately responded with Hellbitch. And I, when Jill told me this, I, first of all, she was like, oh, that's, I was like, that sounds nice. Sure, why not? And she's like, well, it's actually named after Untamable Horse. That, that's Hellbitch in the book. And I'm like, well, maybe let's not name a dangerous piece of equipment after something untamable. That seems a little, maybe not good juju. And uh, we ended up realizing, she told me, that there was a character in there that could tame cow that could tame Hellbitch, which was Cowboy Hal. So now the person who's running the still for the day is Cowboy Hal. Which is you sometimes. Sometimes me, sometimes we have another distiller as well. It, are all stills this pretty? Um, not all of them. Not all for not all stills can be as fortunate as Hellbitch. <laughs> Um, Can you describe what it looks like? What, sure. Sorry, she. You, you keep saying her. She, it's like she, ships. They're they're generally have a kind of a feminine nature to them. I'm not exactly sure why, but when you do look at Hellbitch, I I, I think it's a she. She she's curvy. Yeah, she's curvy. So it's I mean, um, it's not just because this is a this is a business run by women that it's that, that you say she this is this is just an industry-wide thing it, i wouldn't be surprised if it's pretty industry-wide every still i've worked on it has been referred to as a she how much liquid can you put in her yeah uh so hellbitch is a 500 gallon or 2000 liter still uh again a kota still all the way from germany and she's a pot column still which you can see the middle portion of her here is the pot part at the, it's a very curvy shape at the top that's called about an onion ball shape. Over on the left is her column. And at the column part, there are seven different plates. Um, they look like, almost like portholes yeah. in, the, in the side of a, uh, of a ship. Yeah, and so when the column is engaged, uh, we, can, we have uh, bubble caps at each stage. And when you turn a bubble cap, you can actually contain uh, water at that plate and when vapor is forced through there it's actually losing energy not a vapor anymore it's liquid again it has to regain energy to become a vapor and each time it does that it becomes a little bit more pure alcohol a little bit less flavor uh, or congener heavy spirit and um, it's really beautiful when it's actually turned on and doing that because it's just like this spritz is going up hmm. can you correct me if I'm wrong about this, that my super layman's understanding of distilling is that it's all based on the fact that different liquids turn into steam at different temperatures. Totally, and, yeah. and your job is to capture the good tasting ones with the not deadly ones <laughs> and yeah. at, at the right time. Is, yeah. is that, is that more or less what happens? Yeah. So, so but what, what's the, what's the fuller version and what are the names of what you're going for and what you really want to avoid? Right. So when you are distilling, you are separating the basics of this is just simple chemistry. You're separating two things based on boiling points. The beautiful thing about alcohol and the other thing that you're separating, which is water, is that they don't really like to separate. If they did, alcohol industry would be very, very different. We'd be drinking something very everything we'd have no option but to drink something very similar to vodka all the time 
but because of the relationship between alcohol and water, we actually also get flavor coming through. They don't like to get, they don't like to leave each other, but they also bring flavor along for the ride. So when we're distilling something, alcohol has a lower boiling point than water, and it starts to become a vapor or um, gain energy before water does. So it rises up through the still, and Basically, it'll go uh, up as a vapor until it interacts with the condenser, which is the stainless um, piece of equipment right here. That stainless uh, condenser is circulating cold water, and when that vapor comes in contact with it, it becomes a liquid and collectible again. And then we'll collect it at the, the it'll run through this parrot into a collectible vessel. Um, and that happens, we'll, we'll heat up, we'll apply our steam to the system, it's indirect. It'll heat up and about an hour and a half later, we'll start having alcohol flowing. And it'll flow for about 10 hours. So it's a really long day. And over the course of that day, it's a whole spectrum of flavor. So you're not actually just getting the same thing throughout the whole day. Everything's kind of segmented out. The first of it is what we call heads. Um, there's three parts. There's heads, hearts, and tails. And heads is what we don't want into our alcohol. Um, flavor for one, but that's the least important part of it. The other part is that there's dangerous components that come through when you're distilling something. And a lot of it comes from the fermentation process. And it's very natural to have it in there. Even beer in quantities will have these components in there, but they're not high enough to do any kind of damage. But when you're distilling, you're concentrating, so they can become a little bit more problematic. And what we want to do is take those heads, it's full of acetone, methanol, and flavor compounds that we don't like, and we're going to discard it. Stuff that... It might smell like nail polish remover. Exactly. It often does. And it's very easy to note because you can, it smells like nail polish remover. So I wouldn't need to be a trained distiller to, to know that. Not completely. When there's that transitional period, that's where the importance for training comes because you want to make sure that, one, you're getting rid of all of the headsy parts, but you also want to, um, you know, not to waste a bunch of good spirit by making a, a, an adequate, you want to make an adequate, but you don't want to overcompensate. And is that... Your nose, I mean, how do you know it's time to actually um, start collecting the good stuff? It's a lot of nose, and there is also differences in the alcohol content as a distillation runs. Because at the very beginning, we're getting more alcohol than water, but that relationship changes over the course of the run to be more water than alcohol. At the beginning, there is kind of a noticeable blip in alcohol content. And when that shifts, you can see that there is a difference between the heads that you have discarded and versus the hearts, what you want to keep. And then what's after that? What's after the heart? The hearts, um, after the hearts, which is everything you want your spirit to taste like, you get to the tails. And that's where the art of distillation comes in. Because the tails isn't necessarily bad flavor. It's just a flavor you don't want to incorporate into your final product. It can be bad, especially the longer you run it. But um, oftentimes it's just more like with, with a gin in particular, it gets to like more of a flatter note. And so we want to cut it before it gets there. Now I jumped straight into the, um, this still, but there's a lot of work that goes into your work way before you get to this point, right? Totally. I mean, what are you putting inside this? So it depends on what product we're making. Uh, we do a lot of gin here, and we start with a grain-neutral um, spirit. So we, we have that brought in from a different distillery, and we're taking that 
high proof. It's about 190 proof or 95% alcohol. And we're doing what's called a maceration, taking botanicals and combining it with the alcohol. We let it sit and those extractions from the botanicals happen in about 24 to 48 hours. And then once that happens, we're able to add water to bring it to a safe um, proof for distillation and then distill it. Um, when we're making whiskey, especially the rye that we're bottling today, we're taking um, grain, we're combining it with water, we're mashing it and doing all of that on hand. Um, mashing is basically where you're taking starches, you're breaking them down into bite-sized sugars, and then you are taking those sugars you made available suddenly and uh, pitching yeast to consume those sugars. And thankfully, those yeasts will take those sugar and make alcohol we can take that alcohol from those ferments and concentrate it using distillation. One of the lines I heard years ago, which really stuck with me, is that for any creative person, most creative people, they start by being fans of, of the stuff they want to make. Mm -hmm. And there's a gulf between their taste, whatever they're doing, like th their understanding of, of what's good and what they're actually able to make and it, t it takes a while to, right. to, to get good enough to actually mm -hmm. make the kind of uh, quality of stuff that that got you interested in the thing in the first place mm -hmm. a it's a long-winded way of of asking you if you remember when you first distilled something made something that you actually really liked mm -hmm. thankfully i've had a lot of good distillates <laughs> Um, but there was definitely stuff that earlier in my career, like if I looked back at it now, like I can't because not a lot of it exists, but if I could, I, and I mentally picture that too, I'm like, oh, I would have done this differently. And I would have done, would have looked at this flavor exploration a little bit differently. And it just comes with time and experience. You, you, I wouldn't say second guess yourself, but you come to have more knowledge and you learn maybe different or better ways and accomplish things even more efficiently. But so is the first time that you actually distilled things that was when you were in school in Scotland? Yes. Do, yes. You, what, do you remember what it was like the first time you did it? Because it, it seems like a little bit of a, of a magic trick. I mean, it's not magic. This is very clear, very understandable chemistry for mm -hmm. people like you who've studied it. But it also seems sort of like magic. Oh, yeah. I think I was very nervous, for one. Um, equipment is scary to operate, and it should be. You should have a respect for, you know, the fact that you have to treat it nicely. Um, so I remember being afraid of watching equipment and making sure that nothing went wrong. And then the other part was I wasn't super concerned about, what, about making something that was flavorful. I just wanted to be technically good. And the longer you, longer you kind of explore this, the more you kind of get the balance between technically good and interesting. And there is a balance with both of those things. What's interesting to you these days? Uh, <laughs> the... I'm in, um, that's a great question. What's interesting to me day, these days is very delicate flavors that are hard to do. Um, we just released this new product called a forest gin and it's with foraged ingredients from a forest and working with ingredients like that are super challenging because for one, they're seasonal and you want to capture them at their peak. Um, the other thing is that they are hard to completely translate in the way that you, in the way that you want them to. So when we started this, I was having an anticipation of the flavor we could produce, and I thought it would go a direction. And I'm usually pretty right with these things. I have a lot of background in flavor chemistry. I was like, I could kind of, I knew what I thought was going to happen. 
And then with using these ingredients, which haven't been, they don't have like a, a lot of research behind them and how their de flavor develops and you know all those things that I usually kind of lean into when I'm making a product. So there were some wild cards in there and those wild cards were shocking in the best way where their flavor was more than I could imagine. And it ended up creating this product that is um, like kind of walking through a forest. And that's a hard thing to achieve a product that kind of gives you a complete time and place and it's what we were aiming for. And with like the green notes that we were able to do with those ingredients, it just translated in a more beautiful way than I could anticipate. What are some of those ingredients? What are the actual components? Uh, so we ended up foraging um, mostly like five ingredients. Uh, we've done, we've worked with both spruce and dug fir tips, um, chanterelle mushrooms, nettle, uh, salal berries, um, oxalis. It's like the backbone. And then we have two kind of other ingredients that we're also doing this cool, cold distillation. That's kind of the key for keeping these fresh ingredients um, easily to translate into a distillate form. Um, and we're using wild bergamot, which is not a citrus, surprisingly. Huh. I bergamot, thought it was. It's, <laughs> a fl it's a flavor of Earl Grey tea. Bergamot is. Wild bergamot is a flower. Huh. And I did not know that when I started this, but I... Uh, we were looking at a vendor list and I happened to spot that and I just took me down the, you know, the rabbit trail of what is this? What is this ingredient? And I, it's also called bee balm. Um, it's a flower. It has these really beautiful and potent um, leaves that have a lot of like peppery notes and greenness to them. And then um, fresh elderflower too, which we have probably have taste of elderflower, especially with a lot of sugar behind it, but by itself, it's a very different flavor. And so all these ingredients kind of together worked really well, just to create a product that I always hoped I could create, but didn't know if I could. Um, you s snuck in one thing there that is very, to me, most surprising, which is <laughs> chanterelle mushrooms. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't have thought of that in a gin. But yeah. What does it do? So chanterelle mushrooms was another one where I thought it was going to go one way and it really didn't. Um, in a beautiful way. So I thought it was going to be kind of forest floor. That's what you think of when you think of mushrooms. And it ended up being this really beautiful vanilla note. Hmm. Um, it's kind of got this like light vanilla, honey. It's very much more on the sweet side than you think. And it's just this really nice backbone, or I like to call them bridge flavors, that kind of makes a recipe cohesive. Is a part of you always thinking about flavor now f for, for new creations? Always, yeah. Uh, it's hard to turn off your brain, and it's, I mean, I, I don't mind it because it's kind of who I am. I just explore things, and you never know when inspiration's gonna, gonna hit. I think when we were, uh, we were in the spring, we released a new product, our cherry blossom liqueur, and that thought for that came to me in the shower. You know, it's just like, oh yeah, this seems like such a synonymous thing with spring and how beautiful, and I think we have this really cool opportunity with our cold distillation setup to capture that, how I would like it to be captured. And um, that ended up being a lot of fun. So you, you, I just, I'm always kind of thinking of things. It's, it's a perfect, you go to a grocery store and you smell things and you get inspired by what the world around you. There's a whole wide world out there that brings inspiration to, to me and to Freeland. As we're talking, I'm just realizing that there are these big um, sort of storage-sized Tupperware containers that say cinnamon, sumac, <laughs> lemon verbena, uh, 
peppercorns, star oh, yes. anise, cloves and hazelnuts, and on and on and on. Yes. And this, this, these are all the things that you can throw in either for existing recipes or for new ones. Exactly, yeah. So we have a lot of different things that we pull from. Um, of course, we make a lot of gin, so juniper is one of the biggest ingredients that we use. And then we have... Um, I mean, our flagship blue bottle has 19 different botanicals, so it's very botanical heavy. Um, sometimes we end up using um, dried ingredients. Uh, all these are dried and easy to store. And then we also use fresh ingredients, too. Have you worked for um, a business, a, a distillery that was like this one, run by women, owned by women? No. Um, so when we first started in 2017, about 1% of the world's distilleries were owned by women. Um, and I had not had the opportunity to really um, work for another woman. Uh, maybe I, I hadn't had a woman manager. I had really worked mostly with men. Um, and it's, a, it's just a different experience working with women and also being pointed in the fact that we're women owned and operated and um, you know, that's been something we wanted to highlight is that women can be in this industry and do a really great job of it. Has that changed, that 1% that was six years ago? Yes, I think it has. And the last time I looked, it was 3%. So it's actually a lot of growth when you think about it, but more should be done. <laughs> and it is more is happening. Have you run into situations over the years where people come here and they, they assume that you're not the master distiller <laughs> thankfully not here um because people coming here they know they, they know they know they know it has happened to me at other places where i you know the first tour i ever did i ever did um someone was like oh you uh you work in production i was like yeah of course and i think i'd been there for about three months i'm like you don't look like you work in production it was like oh what do you mean They're like well you are a young woman and i'm like well let me tell you about Asiotrope. So we had a lot of fun with that tour, and we went very technical, and they actually ended up enjoying it. It was fun for all. and um, But, yeah, definitely had those experiences where someone just doesn't believe you are who you are. <laughs> you opened in 2018, and then two years later, the pandemic happened. Yeah. What did that mean for everything you do? Um, well, we have not just production, but we also have a tasting room. And um, in 2020, uh, going into COVID, we had a full bar, um, fully staffed. We had a, a food cart as well. And of course, like when when we got the notice, we had to shut down. We ended up losing a lot of people as well. Um, we went down to a very smaller, much smaller team. And um, we also, you know, got the call from um, City of Portland to make hand sanitizer. Um, and we ended up making a lot of hand sanitizer, which kept us very busy. It was not just production, all hands on deck, but we had a lot of help from everyone who was still there. And so we ended up having like the first three months of, of COVID. It's just basically a flash because it ha we were so busy trying to keep up with the demand for hand sanitizer. And thankfully, we were able to help. Um, and then it, it kind of shifted. Um, we started going back to our normal production. Things went to like what is kind of... It was the, the normal at that time. And um, we were also thankful that we could do uh, cocktail pickups for uh, people. People could come here and pick up cocktails to go. And kind of ultimately it was felt like starting three new businesses rapid fire kind of 
everything happening at once. So it was kind of, it was a, it was a very interesting time. Uh, we feel very lucky because we made it through and we feel like we were on the other side, kind of, like knock on wood. <laughs> um, who's to say? Yeah, knock on wood for all of us. I My know. hands are full right now, so you do it for both of us. Yeah. I mean, it seemed, I imagine that making hand sanitizer for the city was, as you said, it seems like a lifeline. Was it also boring? I mean, if, if you're interested in very carefully crafted yes. flavors, like that's, I mean, this is just like, is it going to kill right. the virus? That was basically my daily mantra. I was like, I'm doing some good right now. And yeah. that was kind of what kept us, you know, in it is that we were like, we're, we feel like we're doing some good and we're helping. Um, but it was still soul, cr- soul crushing from a creative aspect. <laughs> but the highlight of it is, you know, we had a lot of time to like, we, it was just, we, didn't allow anyone into the building other than us and our partners who we figured were already exposed. <laughs> so it was just us and we'd come in here, we'd bottle together and we had our ability to kind of decompress with that. So we kind of may had our silver lining. And then also when you're, you know, bottling, it's kind of monotonous work. You get, your mind can wander a little bit. And one of the things that our mind wandered to was new products. Ended up leading to the creation of two new products for us, which is one of them is our clear bottle dry gin, and the other was our uh, French 75, which is a canned cocktail. So there's multiple silver lines that came from it. As we're talking, every now and then there's a ding-a-ding-a-ding, <laughs> and then people cheer. Yes. What, what is happening? Um, so it's actually a very special day. We have, since 2018, been putting, um, been putting barrels of whiskey down. We've been putting rye whiskey away. We've been working with a local farmer, getting this grain. It's stone-milled. It's a very special whiskey, and today is the first day we're putting it into bottle. You mean it's been in barrels for five years now? Almost five years, yes. So we, um, the the last of it's almost five. The, um, the stuff that just became mature at four years old, so it's bottled and bond. It has to be at least four years old. So there's a little bit of four and a half to four-year-old whiskey in there. And each time it goes into a bottle, people cheer? <laughs> so we actually, you know, uh, Dana, who's um, basically running the bottling line right now, is... Um, found a really good morale boost for bottling, which is if you do a perfect label, you get to ring the cowbell. What's a perfect label? The perfect label, so our bottle it has this very unique shape. It's actually difficult to land a, nab- a label where all things line up. So when that happens, um, you can see right now Dana's inspecting a label. When that happens, they get to ring the bell. I'm looking at her to see what she, she has. She's looking over her glasses. Yes. She's touching stuff she's, she's looking, looking at, at the label yeah. she's looking at the bottle we I'm inspect in, I'm everything very by invested hand invested in this right now it's you, a very hands-on process every bit is a person is doing it whether it's you can see in the back there's someone who's rinsing bottles daniel's filling bottles we have someone corking I we have a labeler sit labelers are sitting down it doesn't look like she found that it was completely perfect or at least but there's been no no she's a very high standard okay. i mean it looks, it looks <laughs> great. great to me <laughs> okay we'll go over, over and there's some there's examples of good glass sometimes glass has a little bit of an imperfection we generally reject those and then we'll we'll recycle that glass in the long run it's exciting to get to share all this hard work uh we worked with a farmer who does a lot of heritage grains um camas country mills out of junction city um they also work with a lot of bakeries in town um they work with a pizza thief across the street for the sourdough pizza and they work for the sourdough uh, new bakery the brewer's bread um and they are just kind of legendary for producing great grain they also have this amazing stone mill 
And so they not only grow the grain, they stone mill it for us. It gets brought in 25 pound bags. We heft it up or mash ton, mix it in with um, water and start that whole process. Um, and then once it's gone through fermentation, it's distilled twice, then it's laid to rest in a new American oak barrel. And it's been about an average of four and a, four and a quarter years that uh, this batch in particular will have been in that barrel. Um, it's this really amazing bottled and bond expression, which means that everything was done here on site. That's a minimum of four years old, and then it's a minimum of 100 proof in bottle as well. So it's a real good indication that this whiskey was made 100% here with love. And it is a lot of hard work to work with um, these kind of grains, these heritage grains. They don't necessarily have as much yield as commodity, but they produce such a more flavorful spirit because of that, that it's well worth it. It also seems so, so scary. I mean, like I think about my job where every day we have an hour of radio and mm -hmm. we hope for the best. And, um, but n tomorrow there's a, there's a new show. Right. You worked on this and then put it in barrels four years ago mm -hmm. and then you just have to hope that your work is going to pay off and that and that it'll be infused the way you want it and it'll turn out the way you hope exactly it's it's a lot of um a lot of hope that you goes into it a lot of time a lot of resources and um you know the, our whiskey program is always going to be small because we are a small distillery and we don't have millions of dollars laying, <laughs> laying around i wish um but we've been crafty instead and in producing whiskey um in very small quantities, very passionately. And it is a risk, but it, it so far has paid off, thankfully. Thankfully, we'll and, see the reception. <laughs> and, and you have barrels right now that are on year three or year two? Right, so we've been putting barrels down every year, including this year, um, we're averaging about the same, so it's always gonna be an allotted spirit. It's not, you know, if, if tomorrow it wanted to go international, it'd be like a one bottle for every country, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to be a lot to go around, but that's what also makes it pretty special. Thank you. Of course, yeah. Molly Troop is the master distiller at Freeland Spirits in Northwest Portland. The rye whiskey that was being bottled when we visited is now for sale. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford.
Think Out Loud and all of OPB's reporting in our communities are made possible by the support of our members. Do your part to help make it happen. Become a sustaining member now at opb.org pod.